I'm Kate Daniels. We don't need to look very far to see divisiveness in our world. It might even be right in our own household. It's time to say enough and to get to solutions, which is just a thing that Alicia Dunham's, a communications expert and peacemaker, has done in writing her book, How to Talk to Your Enemies, 101 Plus Ways to Turn Hostility into Peace. Alicia Dunham's, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Kate, thank you so much for the invitation. You know, it was not at all a difficult invitation. I saw the title of your book and I knew instantly that it was something I wanted to know more about and I wanted to make our listeners aware of it. I want the whole world to know this. And that is your book, How to Talk to Your Enemies, 101 Ways to Turn Hostility into Peace. And having written this, I know that that, you come from a place of knowing there's such a dire need in our communities, in our world for this? Yes, Kate. I mean, we can just look around. We can just turn on social media or turn on the television to see that this moment in history is requiring us to show up in a different way. I've been doing this work, leadership work, really, and I work as a mediator peacemaker as well for about a decade. And there was an uptick in my need to have courageous conversations after the murder of George Floyd. And what I found is as I traveled the country, uh, training corporations, people, nonprofits around emotional intelligence, diversity, equity, inclusion issues, unconscious bias, I found that people were really scared to speak up because they were scared of being shut down. And we have created a very hostile environment for people to communicate in. And so that's why I said, let me write a book. And it's called How to Talk to Your Enemies. And it's so funny because I even just last night was in New York doing a book signing at a law firm. And one of the lawyers asked me, they're like, why do we have to call them enemies? Can we use a different word like adversaries or foes or people you don't like. <laughs> and, I, and I said, the reason that I use the word enemies is because of that impact, because we've been treating each other like enemies. Mm. You know, whether it's your next door neighbor who has differing political beliefs and the lawn signs to prove it, <laughs> whether it's, you know, a family member who is contentious and you always clash whether it's a friend, there's constant discord. We are treating each other as enemies. And even there's been, you know, a survey that one out of six Americans no longer talk to a family or friend since the 2016 election. And so we get to talk to our enemies. We get to. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for growth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And maybe it just... Rather than thinking of, oh, it's an adversary, enemy does have a lot of energy packed into it. And so maybe if we look at it in this light, it will help us to really move forward and be in honest conversation. Exactly. I'll tell you where I got the name of the book, How to Talk to Your Enemies. I got it from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Mm. He has a quote, if you want peace, you don't talk to your friends, you talk to your enemies. 
And even Nelson Mandela has a quote in regards to that we get to partner with our enemies. And by being in partnership with our enemies, that's when we come up with new solutions. The, the quote is, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy. Then he becomes your partner. So I personally, Kate, believe that talking to our enemies is our next level of evolution, our next level of spiritual and personal growth. There's so much available to us on the other side of talking to our enemies. And I've seen it firsthand because I do restorative justice work for a nonprofit, and I'm a certified mediator for this nonprofit that supports youth in diverting youth out of the juvenile justice system. And many of these youth are under-resourced youth, uh, come from single-family homes or maybe homes that they are in uh, foster care, etc., so under-resourced youth. And what I found is when we bring youth in to have these conversations with the impacted party, whether it was you know vandalism or fighting or what have you that they did, that there's so much catharsis that happens in these conversations. There's so much learning that happens in these conversations that the youth and the impacted parties, whether that's you know, the school or whether that is you know, the local deli that you know, something was uh, stolen from or theft occurred, there becomes this opening that happens between these two parties in this dialogue, in this what I call healing conversation. And there's so much richness in that. And unfortunately, in the punitive system, and, and obviously the, the, well, the, the nonprofit I work for, we focus on youth, but in the punitive system, it bypasses all that learning. It bypasses, why did this person do this particular crime? You know, what was behind it? And then what's available if they talk with the person that they impacted? What's available there? And there's a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of richness there, a lot of healing, a lot of learning. And, you know, through this restorative justice process, many of the youth write apology letters. They do volunteer service. They write, you know, the vision they have for their selves in the future. They go and clean up or, you know, whatever, like a volunteer service, as I mentioned before. And so it's a lot of catharsis work. It's a lot of work that needs to happen. And so that's why I named the book How to Talk to Your Enemies, because when you partner with the person that you have a disagreement with, the person you can't see eye to eye with, your next door neighbor who you have different political beliefs with, when you partner with them, then you create a solution with them. And then there's, there's just so much growth and catharsis out of that. That is such beautiful work. I read that in your book. And restorative justice, it sounds so great. And I know how they worked with it in South Africa with good results there. I don't know if it was constant, but they were really able to grapple with it and to see what is happening in a small group as you're working with it is possible to apply that really to our neighborhoods, our communities, the cities, and outward, right? Yes, it, it creates safer communities. When youth or anyone who has the opportunity to do restorative justice work, it supports them in seeing a different way. It supports them in building the skills, the soft skills, we call them, that we need to be able to human and to be able to connect with others. 
those soft skills being empathy, compassion, mindfulness, self-awareness, social awareness, being able to regulate your emotions. And we get to, and specifically the example I'm using with this particular organization that I work with called Sentimental Youth Services in Los Angeles to do restorative justice work. In this particular case, these students, because they're under 18, their brains are not even fully developed. So the youth brain is not developed until mid-20s. And so when youth are put into the punitive system, they don't know the consequences of what they did. They're not operating with their full mental capacities, you know, obviously with their brain not being developed. And so, so being able to slow down and being able to have these conversations where the youth are together with the impacted party, with a mediator, with the parent, with members of the community, we also have what we call surrogate impacted parties. And so if the impacted party doesn't want to come to the, the mediation, that we have volunteers that act as a surrogate so they can share with the youth what impact has happened by them stealing a car or vandalizing a school or stealing uh, a candy bar from the local deli. So being able to articulate, this is how this made me feel. When you did this, this is how it impacted me. When they're able to hear that and then repeat back what they heard the impacted party say. So what I heard you say is, that's one of the questions as a mediator we ask you, what are you hearing them say? So that the youth can repeat back what they heard you say. And that's, that's an important part of active listening. It's called the loop of understanding. When someone shares something with you, repeating back what you heard them say shows that you've been listening and then there is an opportunity for agreement. Yes, you heard me correctly. That's what I said. And so there's that, it's a slowing down. And what happens in these healing conversations that throughout my book is, you know, including things like the loop of understanding, repeating back what you heard someone say, saying how things impacted you, having a request, acknowledging people. All of these things really slow down our very hustle and bustle world where people are shooting from the hip and making swift decisions. And that is really exemplified or it's a result of rather people operating from their critter brain, what I call their critter brain, their amygdala. When we're in these heated conversations, when we get upset because someone's voting for candidate A and this is why they're doing it and we react, we are responding from our amygdala. It's an amygdala hijack, and it's what I call the critter brain in the book. And so we get to be aware, what part of the brain am I responding from? Am I, am I responding from my most ancient part of the brain, the fight, flight, freeze, the critter brain, or am I responding from my prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is about collaboration, it's about connection, it's about abundance, it's about imagination, it's about vision, it's about forward thinking, it's the responsive part of the brain. And in the book, I take this neuroscience, and I don't want to scare anyone who's listening because I, I make it very simple to understand, very simple, is for simplicity's sake, there's two parts of the brain. There's the critter brain, which is the reactive part of the brain. It's the brain that asks, am I safe? Am I safe? Is there enough? Is there enough? It's that, that part of the brain that's always in scarcity. Or is the smart part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, 
coming from vision, coming from abundance, coming from there is enough, coming from what can we create, coming from innovation, coming from how can we solve this problem? Because when we do, we'll create so many benefits. And so it's a very simplistically uh, described in the book. And I also ask the question before you open your mouth, is what you're going to say going to be healing or is it going to be harmful? So that's a question that we get to ask ourselves. So Alicia, using the form, the situation of the work that you do with restorative justice and the youth, is there meetings then with the youth and with the parties that were injured, talking about how to approach this and the form it will take? Is there this education that goes on so that it can be that give and take and understanding of each other? Because without that, it feels like there could be defensiveness on both sides. Mm. Yes. So there's a whole process. There's um, actually most of the cases that Sentimental Youth Services, which is the nonprofit that I'm speaking about, come from the police department. So the police want to divert it out of the punitive system when they see it's something that could be solved in a community basis. And then once it's diverted from the police department or the school district, then a case manager takes it on. And then the case manager obviously gets involved with the youth and the youth family or parents or caretakers. And then they explain the whole process, walk them through the entire process. So it, it could be you know, several weeks or months before it gets to the place of the mediation. And the mediation, obviously the impacted party is notified as well. So they're taken through the process. And so when we come together in a room, this was before COVID, we would come together in a room on the uh, campus or at the actual uh, office now we do it on Zoom, is before we come together, they know that the purpose of this mediation is to come to a collective resolution and to create a a restitution agreement. So, like, how are we going to repair what was done? That makes perfect sense, so they really know what to expect. I feel then in our world, we all need to get our own copy of How to Talk to Your Enemies, read it, and then have that basis that we can all hopefully communicate in this very reasonable, caring, conscious, mindful way. Absolutely. And that's how I frame it in the book. I have a model of mindful communication. And really, the framework of a mindful response is the following three things. Is a kind acknowledgement. So you acknowledge the person. And acknowledging someone is such a beautiful way to see them soften in front of your eyes. So a kind acknowledgement. Then number two is a mindful response as you're responding to whatever the person said, and then a powerful request. And so an example of that, you can say, for example, here's an example I have from the book. I appreciate your opinion as I know you share it out of an abundance of concern and care. Okay, so that's acknowledging the person for sharing their opinion. Then the mindful response is, and I want to clarify that I'll be making a decision on my own and I'm not soliciting anyone's opinion. That's your mindful response. And then it follows with a powerful request. Thank you for respecting my request. And another example is, this would be around maybe politics. 
I acknowledge your passion and excitement about this political issue. I'm willing to listen to your views on this political issue with an open mind. I personally believe hearing different perspectives will enhance my understanding of the matter. And then the powerful request. My request is that you listen to me with the same open-mindedness. So those three steps, kind acknowledgement, mindful response, and powerful request, what it does is it creates a framework for responding, for mindfully responding to contentious issues, to difficult conversations. And what it does is it acknowledges the person, it supports in softening them, really calming the nervous system. When, when we're acknowledged, we feel seen, heard, and understood. And what it does is it requires you to dig deep for something kind to say about another human being. And I even encourage people to do this, even if that human being on the other side of the table that you're talking to maybe said something that just hurt you or harmed you in some way. So it supports you in slowing down and being able to respond in a kind way with that kind acknowledgement. Then this book is not about being a doormat in any way. It's about responding. So in those two examples, they were assertive. I'll be making my own decision, and I'm not soliciting anyone's opinion. And, you know, I, I gladly listen to you open-mindedly because I believe that I learn more when I listen to you. And then leading into that powerful request, thank you for respecting my request. My request is that you listen to me with the same open-mindedness. And so it's all of the things together. It's being kind. It's being assertive. It's being connected, it's slowing down, it's being non-judgmental, it's, it's listening, and also sharing and asserting your own response. And it's done in a way that is calm, loving, compassionate. Writing this book for me, and I always say that the teacher teaches what they want to know. And so after you know, working in leadership and especially doing unconscious bias work, the last five years, and that work intensified the last three years, I found that we get to slow down our conversations and we get to really connect with others. And, and a big part of this book is documenting all the exercises and the frameworks and tools that I would really use to help myself and help others being able to navigate these difficult conversations, being able to be open, being able to really cultivate inner peace. Because as you mentioned, conscious and mindful living, Kate, and, and this book is about mindful communication, comes from a place of inner peace. Anger can get us only so far. It's non-sustainable. Peace is sustainable. And so we get to see what's happening in the world. We get to, you know, obviously it's going to move us. It's going to anger us. It's going to create discord and dis ease in some of us to, to see what's going on. And that's a moment. Once we regulate those emotions and realize I'm only going to be able to make change in the world for social justice, for others, for the environment, if I'm coming from a place of peace, because that's going to sustain me for the long walk, which I call the conscious climb. So to live consciously, to live mindfully, it's not a, like a staples easy button that we press the button. It's like, okay, we're going to live mindfully and consciously. It is a moment-by-moment moment choice yes. that we choose each moment to live 
a mindful life, to live a conscious life. And so the more at peace we are, the more we're able to regulate our own emotions, the more likely we're going to be able to protest or create a solution to the world's problem. And so I'm calling everyone to into self-awareness and to be able to use communication as a way to connect with others. Because by our ways of being, by us being calm, peaceful, joyful, that creates a ripple effect. That creates a ripple effect. And people will end up mirroring us through our way of being. And so we get to be examples. And part of that is leaning in, leaning in to talk to your enemies because you will grow as a person through this process. I really so love and appreciate all that you're saying. And I think of myself as being one who is on a conscious climb. But of course, that's what it is. It's a climb. It goes on really forever. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Forever. But I think of a time that I wish I had this kind of more awareness where with someone who was really so contrary to my way of being and thinking, my feeling was I just don't want to be around this person. I want to completely like shut the door and not be around, which doesn't help either of us to be like that or other family members around us, right? So I love the phrases to use and how to approach this consciously and just know it's a journey. It's not going to be, you know, we'd like to think of magic, but it it takes time. It's a journey. It's a practice. Mm. I have over 101 mindful responses in this book. And what I say at the beginning is these are suggestions. You get to try them on. You get to use them and see how you can incorporate it with your own style and your own voice. And then the first time you say it, it might feel a little foreign. And then you might be like, okay. And then you're saying it more and you're saying it more. And then it becomes integrated. It becomes embodied. So, you know, they always say that uh, knowledge is power. And I say, no, knowledge isn't power. It's applied knowledge that is Mm. power. It is embodied knowledge that is powerful. It is integrated into your day-to-day, moment-by-moment that is powerful. And so we get to integrate these learnings into our ways of being and, and how we operate and navigate in the world. And so throughout the book, I give different scenarios, and specifically the book is divided into five sections, communicating with yourself, and that's about really holding counsel with yourself, with your thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, and being able to say, why am I thinking that? Why is that my belief? So asking yourself self-reflective questions, being in self-awareness, really the inner work that gets to happen before you even open your mouth and communicate with others. And then the next section is communicating with others, and that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's developing our skills to be able to connect with others, to communicate with others, to listen attentively, to learn how to apologize, to be able to communicate, meeting new people, sharing our story, being vulnerable. Then I have three sections, which is communicating through differences. That addresses polarization, political polarization, moral differences, belief systems, differences, cultural differences. And the next one is communicating through conflict, That is when two people want to be right, or perhaps 
one party was harmed by the other party and how to reconcile and repair those situations. And then the, the last is communicating through harm. I address uh, racism, sexism, hate speech, gossip, bullying. And I think it's important for us to know that these are all skill sets that we get to have. And as we navigate this world, a world that seemingly is filled with division, polarization, you know, political moral differences, social differences, cultural differences, racial differences, belief systems, is being able to communicate with all types of people is a skill set that is a gift that keeps on giving. To be able to navigate different rooms, different people, different backgrounds, different experiences. People ask me all the time, and you know, my book just came out, like, Alicia, why did you write this book? And I explained kind of what I explained at the beginning of this, this show. I, you know, I've been traveling the nation, leading leadership workshops and unconscious bias, and people are feeling shut down and are not speaking up. And then I'll have a deeper cut of the question. They'll be like, okay, that's the surfacey answer. Alicia, why did you really write this book? Let's dig a little deeper here. And that required me to be vulnerable. It's uh, my background, my parents. I come from two extremely different people. (laughs) Like my dad grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana in the 50s, and he's a black man, grew up poor, one of 10 children. His only way out, really, he couldn't even afford the local trade school and college. He joined the Air Force, and he was stationed in England during the Vietnam era, so the mid-60s. And my mother comes from a affluent British family. She was in London at the time in finishing school. She went to the best schools in England, like where the royal family were educated. And my dad married this woman and brought her back to the States, to the South, when literally like you know, black leaders are being killed. Martin Luther King was just killed the Vietnam War. My mom was in shock when she got to New Orleans, the segregation, the poverty. And so being their child was what prepared me for this book, to write this book. I was a translator between my mom and my dad during their arguments and their fights and what have you. It's like I felt like I needed to to translate what my mom was saying to my dad and what my dad was saying. I was the peacemaker. I was the peacemaker in the family. My brother is seven years older than me when he left the house at 17, you know, I was left with them, and I was, like, the middle person. I was the mediator. Yes, you started and young as a mediator. I started very young. Yes. So, we're, so this is, yeah, this is 40, years, 40 years in the making here. And so, you know, the different cultures, the different socio backgrounds, the different races, the different, like, just even, you know, how my mom saw the world, how my dad saw the world. It was just who I was. And so I feel very adept to be able to walk in different rooms, with different people and be able to create bridges between people that might not see any common ground. Yes, you definitely have the foundation, the experiences to really come as an authentic voice in writing this book. Definitely. Thank you. Oh, what a powerful story, Alicia. It's truly amazing and so insightful and heartening because 
Oh, just everything about it, it just validating. Well, no, underscoring what you share with us and, and help us in navigating this, how to have these conscious conversations comes from that such a real place. I so appreciate it. So I do think, because time is terribly limited. That's not fair, but it is. So we want to be sure to get a copy of the book, How to Talk to Your Enemies, 101 Ways to Turn Hostility into Peace. You have a website also with loads of great information, Alicia. Absolutely. I would love everyone to download a free chapter of the book at talktoyourenemies.com. Of course, you can go straight to Amazon to buy the book and uh, wherever books are sold. And I'm so passionate about this, Kate. And so I want this information out. And I'm actually doing a GoFundMe right now. If you go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Talk to Your Enemies, I'm raising money to send a copy of this book to every member of Congress. And so that's what I'm doing uh, currently. We have 535 members of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate. So I'm doing that right now because I really, truly believe that we get to talk to other humans as humans. We get to be compassionate. We get to have healing, meaningful conversation. And we get to learn the skill of conflict resolution and de-escalation and really the skill of not even getting it to an argument, like being able to squelch it before by us being masterful in what we say and what we say and how we say it and coming from a place of healing versus from a place of being, of harming. And so, yes, I'd love people to go to GoFundMe.com with a slash Talk to Your Enemies or go to TalkToYourEnemies.com to get a free chapter or wherever books are sold. Absolutely. Well, Alicia Denims, I am just so grateful for who you are, all that you've done, and certainly for taking some time with us this morning to share these insights with us. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate you.